This is The Sidebar for the week of April 28, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our guest this week is author and presidential historian Richard Norton Smith. We talked with him about using a president's first 100 days in office as a measurement of success and why FDR set a standard that may never be matched. To apply that same set of expectations, to expect the same level of, of activism, you know, of legislative initiative, whatever you want to call it, uh, to every other president in every given political and economic climate uh, is, is really unfair. Richard Norton Smith, is it fair to judge every president's first 100 days based on FDR's first 100 days? Well, certainly every president since FDR would tell you, no, it's not. I think uh, whatever else may have uh, differentiated them, they've all probably said a silent curse. Not so much at the memory of FDR, who, uh, who really invented the modern presidency, but at the media, who have latched onto this very artificial yardstick. And I say artificial because for a couple of reasons. First of all, every presidency is unique. But stop and think what FDR confronted in the spring of 1933. Uh, there was this enormous, pent-up, unarticulated, uh, but intensely felt need, desire, um, on the part of the American people for action, um, almost any kind of action to combat uh, what very few people understood at the time, and some people had begun to fear might be a permanent condition, i.e., what we now call the Great Depression, 25% unemployment, uh, and all of the, the despair and the hopelessness that uh, that attend such uh, economic conditions. Um, nobody really knew where it came from. Nobody uh, really was confident of when or even if it would end. And so that was a situation in which FDR, who was an activist by nature, um, he said something then that that has influenced presidents ever since, um, some more than others. Um, but it was very much a reflection of his temperament and of the times. He said, if I read the mood of the American people correctly, it's basically they want a president uh, who will try something. Basically, try something if it doesn't work own up to it, and then try something else. But above all, try. And that attitude uh, about the role of government, about the possibilities of government, uh, produced 15 major pieces of legislation uh, within the first 100 days. The Civilian Conservation Corps, um, the National Recovery Administration, um, uh, banking legislation, um, the Works Progress Administration. To, basically, there was a, a need for relief to put millions of people onto some kind of payroll. Um, there was a, a, also a need for reform of the banking system, of Wall Street. Uh, and, and in any event, some of it was contradictory. Some of it was inflationary. Some of it was deflationary. Uh, people even then thought it was, in some quarters, uh, absurd to bring down, um, to, to restrict agricultural production in order to increase prices. All of this was in many ways experimental. And all of this was uniquely reflective of the particular crisis that 
confronted FDR or would have confronted any president at that time. And so it's not really fair to apply or assume that those conditions or those expectations um, would would be applicable to any other president. I want to go back but to that. Keep us from, but it doesn't keep us from 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 falling into the trap. Right. The media talking a lot about it. I want to go back to that in just a moment. But first, a number of polls have been out this week uh, putting President Trump uh, at the low or mid 40s. And my question is, at what point can you judge this president in his first term or any president in his first term? Well, whether we like it or not, people, particularly in this highly polarized, intensely partisan period that we are living through will form their opinions, call it a judgment, of a president um, from day one. Um, that may not be fair, and indeed they may have biases that uh, lead them to form a, a judgment before they take office. Um, there's a difference, though, a profound difference, if I may say so, between journalism and history. Uh, there's a reason that people say journalists write the first draft of history. Um, and that we're we're seeing now. That, frankly, reflects also this uh, preoccupation with the hundred days, which is, as I say, a very artificial um, and, and inaccurate in many ways uh, yardstick. Not only a presidential performance up until that juncture on the calendar, but in terms of predicting. Give me give me a good example. John F. Kennedy's first hundred days uh, is remembered now for the Bay of Pigs, which was at the time correctly as something of a foreign policy blunder, uh, an almost disastrous quasi-invasion um, by Cuban exiles of Castro's Cuba. Um, and yet, in a larger sense, I would argue, John Kennedy's place in the history books, uh, if you remember, in the most recent C-SPAN poll, I think he ranked eighth, eighth or ninth, but he was very, very highly regarded. The fact of the matter is, that opinion rests on his ability to outgrow the assumptions that governed when he first took office. In other words, he went from being a fairly conventional Cold War liberal uh, to being the man who, in June of 1963, uh, went to American University and, and called for a nuclear chest pan. Uh, he'd been through the Bay of Pigs, he'd been through the Cuban Missile Crisis, and those experiences had profoundly altered his view. Uh, and, and, and that's one reason why the 100 days is such, uh, in many ways, an unreliable uh, indicator of how historians, as opposed to journalists, uh, will assess presidential performance. And so as a leading historian, let's talk about a couple of presidents that you have written extensively about. You're currently working on a book on Gerald Ford. We'll talk about him in a moment. But first, our first president, George Washington. Looking back in the book that you wrote, what were his first few months like as our first president? Well, Washington had a very keen sensitivity. I mean, for a man who uh, pretended convincingly not to be a politician. He had real political gifts. And a lot of those were developed during the Revolution, when he was in many ways a political general. But also he was the closest thing to an executive that this uh, embryonic uh, nation had at that point. So he, in some ways, although he was the first president, he, he had considerable practice. 
But he, but he was very aware. Everything he did set a precedent. The classic example is, you know, he took the Constitution very literally, and it says that the, you know, the Senate shall advise and consent on on treaties and uh, and and some presidential appointments. And so, in August of 1789, um, there was a treaty with a, a Native American tribe in Georgia, um, and Washington taking it. Very literally, literally took the treaty with him, got his coach, rode down to Federal Hall, presented it to the Senate, expecting that on the spot they would advise and consent that he could go back home with a treaty. Well, of course, a member of the Senate, a rather opposition member from Pennsylvania and stuff, and um, then, as so many times later, basically proclaimed a senatorial prerogative. Um, and it was very clear that uh, no action was going to be taken that that day, that the Senate would take its own sweet time uh, in considering the matter, and they would let the president know. Washington lost his temper, um, which he very rarely did, um, but uh, he eventually uh, uh, regained his composure. Uh, but he said something very revealing. On the way out, he said to his presidential secretary that he would be damned if he ever did that again. Well, guess what? Um, he set, in that rather extraordinary exchange, uh, he set a precedent. Um, after that day, it was understood that uh, the Senate uh, would take its own time to consider treaties. They were not something to be presented like a State of the Union address with uh, the expectation of a vote uh, on the spot. I know in past interviews, Richard Norton Smith, you have made the point that no president faced a more polarized, divided nation than Abraham Lincoln back in 1861. So how did sure. he navigate the political landmines in a deeply divided and essentially a raw country on the uh, the eve of the Civil War? Well, not only was obviously the country uh, more divided than it had ever been, um, he was... He took office um, with half the South having already seceded, but with a number of states, most prominently Virginia, um, teetering on the edge. And so on the one hand, he had to prepare for the distinct possibility of an armed conflict. Um, but at the same time, he had to be um, prudent enough uh, not to lose Virginia uh, and a number of her sister states. So it was really a, a balancing act. And, and it came down, for example, to uh, Fort Sumter in uh, Charleston Harbor. And would the United States, would the, the northern United States, acting through Lincoln, uh, in effect uh, reassert federal control over this military installation? Would it resupply uh, or would it withdraw? Uh, and Lincoln got... Um, Obviously, lots of advice on, on both sides. But it's, again, uh, it was a preview of Lincoln's political genius. Lincoln's presidency really is the story of someone who grew uh, almost every day he was in office. And, uh, but he gave us a preview of his uh, political skills by maneuvering the situation around Fort Sumter in such a way as to force the South to make the first aggressive moves. Remember, uh, it was uh, from uh, the battery in Charleston uh, that the guns rang out on April 12, uh, 1861. Uh, those were southern 
guns, Confederate guns, and in doing so, Lincoln, in effect, put the North on the, the moral high ground as the party that had been attacked. And that, in turn, uh, helped to stimulate an enormous outpouring of volunteers and other effort, other support for the Northern cause. It might not necessarily have materialized had he been seen as the aggressor. And, of course, seven decades later, a different president, a different time, the Great Depression, and you talked about the pent-up demand before Franklin D. Roosevelt took office. Uh, Clearly one of the biggest changes, moving up the inauguration to January versus March, because FDR's first 100 days in the early summer of 1933. So go back to that that point in, in what Roosevelt was thinking about as the country essentially was languishing under the administration of Herbert Hoover. Yeah, Roosevelt, um, there's a wonderful story. That a little you know, he took the train south to D.C., and, um, and of course, it gave him an opportunity to see with his own eyes, uh, as if he had not already in the previous campaign, but he could see, literally, the physical effects of an economy that was, uh, uh, to put it mildly, languishing. Um, and with it, in the eyes of some, the popular faith, in democratic with a small d capitalism, in, uh, in democracy itself. And uh, someone said to Roosevelt, trying, I guess, to um, buoy his spirits, that, you know, if he succeeded, he would be one of the greatest of all presidents. And FDR thought for a moment, he said, and if I don't succeed, I'll be the last. And that is not, um, it seems to me, uh, an exaggerated reading of the situation. Um, and, but it also helps to understand the sense of urgency, uh, as well as experimentation, that, that Roosevelt brought uh, to the office. Um, the problem, of course, is that, as I say, this, the, the circumstances, the context in which Roosevelt uh, was operating was, thank God, uh, really unique in American history. And, and, and so to apply that same set of expectations to expect the same level of, of activism, you know, of legislative initiative, whatever you want to call it, um, to every other president in every given political and economic climate uh, is, is really unfair. But again, yeah, it's, 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 become, it's become a journalistic yardstick mm-hmm. that, is, that is almost inescapable. And yet Lyndon Johnson tried to apply the FDR lessons on his education bill, Bill Clinton on his health care bill, which failed, and more recently President Obama with the stimulus package. Well, but remember, Obama got his stimulus package. Um, Obama got the Willie Wedbetter Act. Um, I mean, he, he, the, the first hundred days of the Obama administration, probably more than most of these other presidents, actually did have a parallel with what FDR confronted, because remember, you know, we had, we had been through the economic nightmare uh, beginning in the summer of 2008 um, with uh, the, the collapse of Wall Street, venerable institutions on Wall Street, and, and there were those who, who believed um, during the transition from Bush to Obama uh, that there was a real real question. No, no one was sure that we were going to be able to avoid another Great Depression. So I'm always thought, the remarkable story, and it's largely untold for obvious reasons, is not so much what Obama did during his first hundred days as what 
the Bush and Obama teams did together during the interregnum. In other words, during that period between Election Day in November and, uh, and the Inauguration Day in January, I, I would argue that we had one and a half presidents during that critical period. And that if you look at things like, for example, the bailout of, of the Detroit auto industry, it, it really began uh, in the closing days of the Bush presidency and was picked up and pressed forward by, by the new president, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, but you, you, it was unlike FDR and Herbert Hoover in 1933, where basically the two camps did not communicate when the, the hostility uh, between them was transparent. And when the nation's economy sank uh, ever faster, uh, while it seemed as if its elected leaders um, were doing anything but leading, by contrast, I think both Bush and Obama were students of history. And they knew, well, President Bush famously said at one point privately that if there was going to be a depression, he was going to be Roosevelt and not Hoover. And I think that's a revealing statement, and I think it gives you an idea as to how behind the scenes uh, these two very different men with very different uh, political um, uh, mindsets, if you will, uh, were able to to work together. So the real story of of that transition is is one of continuity, uh, not, not breaks. It's interesting, too, because if you talk to President Bush and President Obama, they both agreed that during that period they developed uh, a, a real friendship, a real bond that really extended yeah. uh, to uh, their spouses. Well, first of all, it tells you first of all about both men, that they, um, that they in their own way, each uh, put what they saw as the good of the country ahead of narrow, partisan, or short-term advantages. Um and, and, and obviously, was something that extended to their wives. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, almost famous now the uh, the friendship that has developed uh, between uh, Michelle Obama and uh, and George W. Bush. But you saw that earlier. You saw that with uh, his father, with uh, the first President Bush and Bill Clinton. Exactly. Who, let's face it, had run a a pretty bitter campaign, uh, and yet who became uh, very close. And um, you know what you want to do is uh, if, is to re- is to take a look at the letters, you know, that presidents leave in the desk for their successors. Um, and certainly, President Obama left one for uh, for President Trump. But before that, um, you can go online. Actually, a very classy letter from George H. W. Bush to Bill Clinton, in which he made it very clear that. That he was pulling for Clinton's success, that Clinton was his president, that everyone's president, and and likewise, you saw that uh, gesture repeated uh, when uh, George W. Bush uh, turned over the uh, keys to the White House to Barack Obama. Um, as long as this country can uh, can still summon that kind of statesmanship uh, in in times of uh, turmoil. Um, that's more important than any hundred days. In our remaining couple of minutes, Richard Norton Smith, let's talk about two 
recent Republican presidents that you have worked for. You're in Grand Rapids, Michigan, working on a book on Gerald Ford. His first 100 days marked in large part with the pardon of Richard Nixon. And now, through the prism of history, people are looking at that very differently. What are you learning as you research the Ford biography, and what are your thoughts about that pardon and his first 100 days? Well, it is a classic example of the dangers uh, that come from putting too much emphasis on the first 100 days. Certainly, if you went back and read the clips um, at the time, you know, Gerald Ford's approval rating overnight slipped 20, slipped. It, it fell 22 points. I mean, the biggest uh, decline ever recorded, uh, and it was because of the pardon. Um, and there were certainly people who um, who believed that it had prematurely uh, really put an end to his possible effectiveness um, in that office uh, to which he had, in effect, been appointed. Um, history, you're right. History does look at it very differently. I'll never forget uh, the day um, back in 2001 when the Kennedy Library presented Gerald Ford with its Profiles and Courage Awards, specifically uh, citing the, uh, the part of Richard Nixon. And on that occasion, Senator Kennedy very, very generously, very graciously said that uh, with the hindsight granted us by history, uh, that he now saw that President Ford was right and that he, Senator Kennedy, had been wrong in his initial assessment. Um, historians, um, well, people will argue it for a long time to come, but, but it's, a great, it's a great example uh, of, of, of how the first hundred days, the first impressions, important as they are, uh, can sometimes be misleading. And what about Ronald Reagan, his first 100 days, a flurry of legislative activity, and an assassination attempt in March of 1981? Well, and, and in fact, you're right. I mean, the, I've often said the Reagan presidency, although it may have technically, you know, legally begun on January 20th, 1981, in a sense, historically began on March 30th, uh, almost 100 days later, when, of course, the president was a victim of an assassination attempt. Um, he emerged from that with, in many ways, uh, a whole new public appreciation. Remember, um, those of us who are old enough to remember the event uh, also remember uh, many of the, the quips, witticisms, and uh, uh, comments that he made at the time, some of them literally on the operating table. He showed um, a, a character. He, uh, he obviously a, a strength, uh, but but above all a character that day that I think served him very well uh, for the rest of his term. That that the campaign itself, you know, so, uh, campaigns today are so stylized. It's like kabuki theater. They're scripted, and we know they're scripted, and and they sometimes reveal less of of, of a man uh, of a leader than obviously once he's actually in office, and. After March 30th, people never quite looked at Ronald Reagan uh, the same way. I mean, they didn't underestimate him, as they, many of them were prone to do uh, before. And um, the, the first evidence of that was the economic plan, the tax cuts, the budget cuts, kind of the omnibus economic recovery act that he had been promoting uh, before the, uh, the assassination attempt. Um, ironically, 
Well, he said later on, when uh, when his pollster told him that at one point during the economic recession, his numbers were, were quite low. Um, I think they actually dipped below 40% at one point. And Reagan, being Reagan, um, with a twinkle in his eye, said, well, that's, that's easy. I'll just get shot again. Um, <laughs> he understood the enormous transforming effect that that experience had had um, on many many Americans, including some who wouldn't vote for him in 1984, but who decided anyway that this was that there was more to this man than they had been led to believe, and that um, that served him very well. And finally, you are finding much more on the life and career of Gerald Ford as you research uh, his papers at his library and museum, preparing your own book, which, by the way, will be coming out when? 2020, hopefully just before the next presidential election. And anything interesting that you can share with us about Gerald Ford, well, the man? I tell you, people are going to discover Gerald Ford was much less the party man and much more the insurgent. Um he ran for Congress initially against an entrenched Republican isolationist um, against all odds, and he beat him in the primary and went on from there. But more than that, he goes to Congress, uh, and he defies the Republican leadership on one issue after another, um, on clipping the rules committee's power, for example, to bottle up Harry Truman's uh, domestic uh, policy. He actually signed a round robin with 80 other members of Congress endorsing world federalism. Um, I, I, you know, he might as well have endorsed Esperanto as the, um, the national language of the United States. Um, he was always an internationalist. He always was a great believer um, as a result of his experiences in the Second World War that America had to take a much more active, proactive role if you will, for example, during during the Cold War. But one of the real surprises, he consistently, for example, sometimes was the only member, the only Republican from Michigan to vote for civil rights legislation. And we're talking in the 1940s. Uh, it's a much richer, much more nuanced, um, and, and frankly, much more interesting um, record than I think people uh, generally assume. We will look forward to that book, uh, one of your many publications and biographies, including on George Washington and more recently on Nelson Rockefeller. Author and presidential historian Richard Norton Smith joining us from Grand Rapids, Michigan, as we approach the 100-day mark of the Trump presidency. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.